Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. How do I define freedom? To be able to be in my own body in any space at any time. An extension of my ancestors, like what they didn't have for freedom, I do wholeheartedly, I multiply it to honor them. Oh my gosh, that's heavy. As feeling like your obligation is to your own happiness and well-being. As the ability to do what you want to do, but not in a way that would hurt somebody else. For me, it's uh, through dance. As to be accepted for who you truly are and no one's saying anything about it. As a soul that is free from suffering. As no limitations put upon a person. As being able to speak without permission. It shouldn't be, can I? It is what it is. I woke up, I'm free. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. Ayanna Mathis published her first novel in 2013. It was an intimate and wrenching family story stretching across generations and set in the midst of what's known as the Great Migration, the movement of millions of Black people from the South to the North and the West throughout the early 20th century. The book became a New York Times bestseller, and NPR called it one of that year's best reads. This week, Ayanna Mathis publishes her second novel. It's called The Unsettled, and it's again a, an intergenerational story of a Black family. But while migration and movement remain a theme, we now meet our characters at a crossroads, with each of them unsure where to turn next in their search for some kind of self-determination. That may be familiar emotional territory for a lot of people right now. It certainly is for me. Ayanna Mathis joins me this week to talk about her work, about her own journey, and the ideas she's been pursuing along the way. Ayanna, welcome to Notes from America. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. A pleasure, a pleasure. Uh, let's start by meeting the woman whose journey drives much of the action in The Unsettled. The, the story begins in 1985 with a mother, Ava, and her son, Toussaint, who has just arrived at an emergency housing center or housing shelter in Philadelphia. Introduce us to Ava. Who is she and what's happening in her life at the moment we meet her? So Ava, uh, she has a very interesting past. She comes from a place we'll probably talk about in a little while called Bonaparte, Alabama, which is a black settlement uh, that at one point was thriving, deeply successful and really kind of singular. Um, when we meet it in the 80s, it's sort of in its death throes. There are just a few people left, and most of the young people, of whom Ava was one, left. So Ava left Bonaparte. She kind of bounced around for a little while. She lands in Philadelphia. 
Um, she has a few relationships. She gets married. The marriage does not work out spectacularly so. Um, <laughs> and the sort of spectacular uh, explosion of that marriage is what lands she and her son uh-huh. in this shelter when we meet them. Uh-huh. So Ava's a woman who's searching for something that she doesn't understand exactly what it is or where she might find it. She's a sympathetic character, I hope, but she also has a little bit of a penchant for self-sabotage. Indeed, indeed. Uh, The first part of the story mostly takes place in and around that emergency housing shelter that, that Ava and her son arrive at. We get a real sense that she is stuck and she is angry about it. And she feels that she's been hurt badly, but she's got a sense that the real culprit is not in any specific individual, which is, of course, crazy-making because it means she doesn't know where to direct her anger. And there's this line you write. It says, quote, and this is a little later in the book, but it's, quote, you can't kick the system in the face. You can't slit the system's throat. Tell me about that emotion Ava is wrestling with, like this tension between like a system is what she's really mad at, but she's facing individuals. Well, I think it's a couple of things. As I mentioned before, she's from this place called Bonaparte, which was this this all-black settlement um, in the South. And it was a place that I imagine it it's a little bit mythical and a little bit real. Um, but the folks living in that place were in entirely self-determined, shockingly so given the historical period in which they exist, which is like 19th century up through uh, Jim Crow, etc. So Ava has a sense that there is this thing called white supremacy and there is this whiter world that squeezes them, but it is also not exactly the way that she has understood herself. Mm -hmm. And so she understands that there is this thing that is squeezing at her, that that sort of has it out for her, that is curtailing her ability to make choices and things like that. But she also has a sense that perhaps there is some other way to live outside of this thing, Mm -hmm. which is very much the model of the place in which she grew up, called Bonaparte, as I said. So she finds herself both stymied by the fact that she doesn't know how to navigate the fact that the system is squeezing her so tightly. She doesn't know exactly where to put her anger, as you said. And she's also stymied by the fact that she understands that there is some other way but she can't get back to it or figure out how to make it. Yeah. And that's the part that is so resonant for me. And I think a lot of people that you're like, there is something else that I could be doing here, um, but I can't quite figure out how to get there. And and there's something that's missing along the way. Uh, There's a passage at the start of the book. I want to ask you to read um, that gives us a sense of what Ava is experiencing at the shelter. And it's notably shot from the perspective of the person handling her case. Um, So can you read that piece for us? And then we'll talk a little bit about it. Happy to. Miss Simmons, this is the social worker handling Ava's case. Miss Simmons sat across from her 1 p.m. appointment, Ava Carson. She'd given her an additional two days to settle in before this second assessment. Some of them took their arrival here harder than others. This Carson woman seemed a little fragile. Plus, there was something odd about her. Could be a secret boozer, though she didn't look it. Clear eyes. Or a user, but she didn't look like that either. Psychiatric problems, maybe, though the psych social worker said she'd passed the evaluations. But that didn't mean anything. People could be depressed, couldn't they? They could have something seriously wrong and still know the day of the week and who was president. She's fine, June said, after the evaluation. June was a little put out about that. 
June didn't like a pretty, well-mannered woman taking up her time if she wasn't a little out of her mind. Fine with me, Miss Simmons thought. I'll take the Ava Carsons of the world any day, even if she is a little strange. Just yesterday, a resident had told her very calmly that she'd left her previous place of residence because her father, who was apparently a bastard and dead, had taken control of the hi-fi system and was talking to her through the speakers. It seemed this father could now be heard through the radio on Miss Simmons' desk, and the stink coming off that woman hadn't washed in God knows how long, this while she bounced a two-year-old on her lap. So, Miss Carson? I mean, sure, I feel sad. We don't have anywhere to go. Miss Simmons didn't care for crying, though it was unavoidable in her line of work. She didn't want this Carson woman welling up and spilling tears down her front. She did not like when things overwhelmed their boundaries. Her job was to impose order on chaos so these women could get out of there and live like other people. Mm. So these women could get out of there and live like other people. So, so, and this is fairly early in the book. Right away, we get this idea, this picture of Ava as outside of society, um, as pushed outside of society. And we start to hear these ideas about what someone like that is. Um, just tell me a little bit about why... Uh, wh- wh- why you want? Why you wanted to have that perspective early in the book? Uh, that that lens on Ava early in the book. I think a lot of the book, uh, and I think Hattie was too, but this book in particular is about people who are struggling to find something meaningful on what we might call the margins of society. And we have a lot of ideas about the people on the margins, right? People who might um, not decide for the conventional modes of happiness or morality or whatever it is. Um, The people in this book, Ava in particular, but also her mother, also her lover, who we'll meet later, these people all are looking for something else. They're looking for something else psychically and spiritually. That is, their personalities want something else to feel fulfilled, but they're also looking for something else politically and socially. These people, Ava wouldn't use these terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm sorry, Ava, I'm putting words <laughs> in your mouth. Um, but I, I think that what she's looking for is something like freedom. She's looking for something like autonomy. She's looking for agency as a black person, as a black woman for herself, for her child, for her community. And necessarily, I think, at least in the scheme of this book, in order to try to find a way to fully inhabit those things or take a realistic shot at getting those goals, you end up being outside right. of the mainstream. Right. I, you know, some years ago, I was in an editorial meeting and we were talking about what drives our work. And I said, for me, I'm invested in freedom for Black people. That's my North Star, this freedom thing that mm. Ava's chasing and I'm chasing and we're all chasing. And a non-Black colleague asked me, what does that even mean? What do you mean by that? And, and I felt some kind of way about the question at the right. time, <laughs> um, if I'm honest. But I did also not have a good answer. Mm-hmm. And uh, that exchange came to mind as I was reading The Unsettled. And so I figure as somebody who's obviously thought about um, the question of freedom and Black freedom in particular a lot, before we go to break here, do you have a, do you have a succinct definition for yourself? Like, what is, what is Black freedom? 
I think that it has something to do. I don't have a great answer either. Uh, this book is actually, I think, more a lot of questions about what that might be mm. than answers about it. Um, but I think it has something to do with, in this country, we think a lot that we have freedom to. We have freedom to create things. We have freedom to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We have freedom to do all these sorts of things, right, We is the narrative. Right. But what impedes that freedom is a certain freedom from We don't have freedom from racism. We don't have freedom from white supremacy. We don't have freedom from all of these things. So as long as we don't have freedom from, we can't have freedom to. Mm -hmm. But what about for you? What about for Ayanna Mathis? (laughs) I feel really fortunate. You know, I have a lot of creative freedom. Um, I have... Um, a certain amount of autonomy and agency that I didn't grow up with, that my my mother and my grandparents didn't have. Um, some of that is circumstance. Some of that is the times. I understand that it's kind of, um, I understand it as a blessing. Um, I feel free to talk about the things that I don't have freedom from, which is a great deal of freedom, actually. Right, right. Right. You know, I mean, to, to not then be violently beaten um, for saying such Exa- things. Exactly. Um, you know, yeah. it's, um, yeah. 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 I still don't quite have an answer for myself either, but I know it means a lot to me. <laughs> we need to take a break. I'm talking with Ayanna Mathis about her new novel, The Unsettled. It tells an intergenerational story of a Black family and each member's kind of frantic effort to define for themselves what it means to be free at the close of the 20th century. When we come back, we'll meet more of Ayana's characters and we can take your calls. Can you define what it means to be free today? It's a massive question, I know, but maybe it's the defining question of all of our lives. I don't know. Let's see what you guys can come up with. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. This week, Notes from America is celebrating its first birthday. A year ago, we launched on radio stations across the country. Today, we're on more than 100 stations, and we've been able to talk to and hear from listeners in New Mexico, Baltimore, Chicago, and of course, everywhere you listen on podcasts. So thank you for making this show possible. Your comments, your engagement, that's what makes it all happen. And hey, we do this show for you. If you want to help us celebrate, visit us on Instagram. We're getting love all week from other shows, former guests, and listeners just saying happy birthday and sharing episodes they love. And if you want, we'd love to post a message from you too. So if you're on Instagram, record yourself, post it as a story, and tag us in your story. Our handle is at noteswithkai. That's K-A-I. You can also send us a voice message. Just go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says record. I wish I could offer you some cake, but that would cost a lot in postage. So in lieu of that, just thanks again and hope to hear from you soon. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined by best-selling author Ayana Mathis. This week, she publishes her second novel called The Unsettled. And as the title suggests, it's a story about searching for home, for safety, and ultimately for this elusive idea of freedom. And Ayana, we've been talking about your main protagonist, uh, Ava, 
And as you mentioned, she grew up in a place called Bonaparte. Now, this is a fictional town in Alabama. Uh, and her estranged mother, Duchess, still lives in Bonaparte. Tell us about this place Ava grew, grew up in. Uh, what was it at the time she lived there? At the time that Ava lived in Bonaparte, it was still doing pretty well. Um, they were a kind of cooperatively run community. Um, the numbers, they owned something like 10,000 acres, in my mind, at the time. <laughs> um, so they farmed uh, some subsistence farming, but also selling crops. They had a bunch of businesses. They made preserves there. Ava's stepfather was a kind of renowned furniture maker in the area, and people would come from all over the place to buy his furniture that was custom-made. Um, so it was a really thriving place. Um, it was a place that was, you know, had no... Uh, you know, only white here things, even even through Jim Crow. Yeah. So this place is is both, uh, I said a little bit earlier, near the top of the hour, the place is both, um, it's a spiritual homeland. It's a, it's a physical reality in the book, but I think also in my mind, it's a little bit of a myth. They, um, you know, there's one way into this town by land um, and then one way out by sea. That's it. They're in a bend on the Alabama River. Uh, They've got guards in the trees. Yeah. It's a little Wakanda. It's mystical. But it you is. know what? It's also a little, but I mean, it's not entirely fi fictional. No. Honestly, I mean, there are a number of towns like this in, in, in the history, and we've talked about some of them on this show in the past, that, it, that, that were these all-black towns where there was freedom. Um, you know, uh, and that uh, have since faded to some degree. What, what did Bonaparte become? So uh, by the time we meet Duchess in 1985, uh, we are introduced to a very different Bonaparte. What has happened over the years? Well, a lot of uh, several things have happened. Um, th the easiest thing to say that's happened is most of the young people have gone. So uh, when we meet Bonaparte in the in the mid '80s, um, it is Duchess there, Ava's mother, uh, and four other people, and they're all in their 70s and 80s, and they're just trying to they 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 become custodians. They're trying to hold this land mm -hmm. and hold this legacy for what they don't know. None of them are convinced that their children are going to come back, but they're holding on to this land as the legacy to give to their children. Uh, you know, the roads are broken up, the fields are overgrown, uh, etc. Um, and it's sort of being slowly, and here's a little bit of the mythical aspect, I suppose, it is kind of cut off from time. So there's an aspect of the book in which it's Duchess, uh, one of these main characters, she looks out at the river and she keeps seeing this mist, yeah. which she is convinced is getting thicker and thicker almost by the day. And so it's almost as though time and circumstance is cutting off this place, is disappearing it from history. Yeah, There's actually, there's an exchange I wanted to ask you about There's there's that's uh, just, just stuck with me. So it's a moment where Duchess is telling, there's there's a strange visitor who comes to town, um, and Duchess is telling this person about the history of Bonaparte. Um, and she starts talking about people who have disappeared. That's the word she uses, disappeared. And she says, quote, we got off the track of our own time and back onto white people's time. Maybe this place can't exist in white people's time. Maybe it'll just fade away and stay gone. What's she on about there? That I, that that just really stuck with me. I think she's I think she's referring to the she's referring to a couple of things. One is this sort of actual extant political circumstances because they've also lost a lot of land to things like eminent domain. Um, there was a kind of invasion by the state of onto their land. Uh, there are white developers. There's a, a company called Progress, which is slowly buying up the land as people become unable to pay its taxes, etc. So there's this actual real 
encroachment that's happening. So in some ways, she's talking about that, that the the forces that be will not allow this place to exist any longer. And then I think in another way, she's almost talking about something psychic and, and spiritual. She's asking a question about whether or not we have progressed so far in society that it is possible anymore for anybody, much less Black people, to live autonomously and freely. So it's kind of a double-edged question, I think. Uh, you know, it's... I. So my, my mother grew up in Tuskegee, Alabama, which mm. is a real place, not a fictional place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, uh, you know, was founded in part uh, as a place for a certain, we will have, must say, class, mm. middle class of mm. black Americans in the era mm. of Jim Crow to have their middle class lives because of uh, the segregated nature of it. And inside that segregation, they had these lives. Um, that were largely free. And I would spend my summers in Tuskegee with oh, my grandmother. Wow. I grew up in Indianapolis. And I it, it struck me reading this book, the the the, um, the relative freedom I felt in those summers at Tus- mm-hmm. in Tuskegee relative to, to back in Indianapolis, which is not a comment on Indianapolis one way or the other, but it just, <laughs> there was something about being in that space and the way my grandmother moved through it. But by that point, it was a place that was fraying at the edges, where it was mostly old people. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I I say all that to say I'm not sure what, but um, but that that it just these do feel like places that maybe integration. Maybe that's where I'm going here. Integration always felt like it was the thing that interrupted life in Tuskegee. I don't know. I put that to you. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think that that's a, that's a good and interesting point. And, and you, you know, you made the point earlier about, you know, it's a place, a place like Tuskegee, but, you know, places like Mound Bayou, all of these settlements, um, many of which faded well before the question of integration actually sort of politically got right. onto the table, right. right? Like a lot of these places popped up through the reconstruction after. Uh, after the Civil War, and by the time we kind of get going good with Jim Crow around 1900, they're they're beginning to fade. But some of them remained, um, and I think. You know, there's a there's a great writer named named Al Murray. I don't know if people, some listeners might be familiar with him. His name is Albert Murray. He lived a very long, wonderful life, um, and he wrote several books of fiction. And um, in one of them, he he talks about and, and nonfiction as well. And one of them talks about not necessarily having understanding himself as a black kid, but not really understanding himself as a black kid in the same way because everybody around him was black. And everybody around him, all the roles around him in the place where he grew up, many of those roles were fulfilled by by black people. His teacher was black, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, let's say, my mother, who grew up in Philadelphia, which is where I'm from, my mother's experience is entirely different. My mother grew up with white teachers, white doctors, white everything, not her neighborhood, but everything else was. So she she is defining herself necessarily over and against an other in a, in a way that that people maybe in a town like mm. Tuskegee or the fictional Bonaparte wouldn't be defining right, themselves. Right. I'm talking with Ayata Mathis, whose new novel, The Unsettled, is out this week. It is a story of a Black family searching for freedom uh, in a variety of ways. And listeners, I want to hear from you. Can you define what it means to be free today? A massive question, I know, but, you know, maybe the defining question of our lives. We can also take questions for Ayata Mathis about her work or about either of her two novels. And let's go to Angel in Woodbridge, Illinois. Angel, welcome to the show. 
Hello. Hello. Thank you. Um, I wanted to comment on what black freedom means or kind of a definition of it. Um, I do have resources, which I think is the other word for, you know, money. Um, <laughs> and I think to some degree that it buys you some freedom, uh, make choices, especially for your children. But I feel as though I, I still can't relax. And, you know, I just want to, you know, go to the store, go to the park, go everywhere. But I find that I'm always scanning and I'm always looking out for my kids. And sometimes I see people staring at my kids. I'm like, why are they staring at my kids? You know, so I'm always thinking, always just, you know, just, I don't know, maybe everyone is always thinking, but I think that's the freedom I'm looking for. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I went to Hyde Park, went to a restaurant. It was full of black people. I was just like, you know, I, you know, it's a comfort that you, you notice that you gain and, and you notice when it's not there. So I just think that's the last step. It's security yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. Is that fair to that say? Feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, that feeling. Angel. That feeling of just comfort. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that, Angel. Let's go to Barbara in Westchester County, mm-hmm. New York. Barbara, I understand you have a song that defines freedom for you, right? Um, uh, well, it's it's a quote from Nina Simone. Yes. Uh, I, I'll <laughs> preface this by saying that I am nominally white, so to speak. Uh, nominally? I heard a wonderful... <laughs> well, I always put that in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, all a fiction, Barbara. It's all a fiction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I saw a wonderful interview with her a few years ago, and she was asked, what does freedom mean to you? And she looked straight into the camera and said so fiercely, no fear, no fear. Mm. And that that made such a powerful impression on me because I, I it made me realize I... I don't have to to think that way. I mm. I don't have to think that way, and it just it's it stayed with me ever since. Thank you so much, Barbara. That's yeah, wonderful. It really is. Go ahead, Ayanna. Can I? You know, one of the things that made me think of because you because you um, because of the quote from Nina Simone, and I always think about you know what's what where does art fit into to these discussions? Mm. You know. Um, and I use, you know, earlier I used terms like white supremacy and racism, but I don't usually actually use those terms, not because they aren't true and not because we don't need them, but because I think I understand my role as a writer and an artist to kind of think about bodies and hearts and minds and to try to understand what happens in a body or a heart or a mind when they come up acro- when they come up against these kinds of things. Um, so I'm making story out of mm-hmm. those things, and that's mm-hmm. what I feel my role is. And I think, you know, we have these wonderful quotes from Nina Simone because she's a genius. But we also have she also matters to us so much because of the artistry. Because without using any of these words that we have to use so often, and that we use sometimes, I fear to the point that they almost become meaningless. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, she embodied that in song and in her whole sort of self, but essentially through her art. And so I, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you kind of brought her up and, and, and brought a way of, of thinking about what the arts can do in all of these, this, this discussion. I, too, am thrilled that Nina has come into the room because even as I was working on the script today, I was just, just she was in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to be? I'm not going to try to see it in this moment. It's a disaster <laughs> for everybody. Uh, so one of the things about The Unsettled, and I think it's true for Hattie, too, your, your previous novel as well, is racism, white racism, white people exist at the margins of the story. Um, we hear about threats coming from developers and police, but that is not the primary tension or conflict. It's all sort of internal conflict within Black relationships or within oneself. I, I'm reminded 
of Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun. It's a, one, to me one of the great examples of this, where like the 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 racism is a looming thing, but it is not at all what the story is about. Right. Um, is that uh, was that an intentional choice um, in this writing? And just tell me about that. It is one thousand million jillion percent an intentional <laughs> an intentional choice. Um, because I think, you know, I think one of the things that happens um, is that we begin to think, we begin to think of people as victims, or we begin to think of them as people who are only ever acted upon, but who are not actors. Mm. And I think that's dehumanizing. Um, and I think it's also untrue. Uh, and so very much in both of these books, and I, and I hope in the future, um, I'm, I'm very interested in who are these people. I'm also a fiction writer. And that means that it's my job to make characters on a page. It's right. my, my job to write you a pamphlet right. Right, about racism. Right. It's my job to kind of move believable human beings through the space-time of the circumstance in which they find themselves. Part of that circumstance, of course, is all of these forces that are pressing on them. But they are first and foremost themselves. They are not perfect. They are deeply flawed. They There are all kinds of internecine struggles and problems. They have to struggle with their own psychology, their own proclivities, and all of that stuff. So in as much as I understand these people to be fully human, I, I was not at all interested in representing them through the lens of someone else, mm-hmm. but rather through their own experience of what is happening to them in their lives. And that the and and that the tension, um, the the conflict is 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 with is oftentimes with themselves. Yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. And everybody, you know, I mean, the, there's a there's a guy. I won't give anything away. It's a spoiler alert. But uh, <laughs> there's a guy who's a very charismatic figure, and he's right about a lot of things. And he's also not really a great guy, you yeah. know? So I also am not interested in sort of writing these characters that are perfect perfect yeah. or above reproach in some yeah. kind of way. Yeah. Uh, legacy and land ownership become central to this story as well, especially as it's connected to Bonaparte. Why, why is land so important to what you're doing with this story? I think we think a lot about legacy sometimes in terms of you know, someone really wealthy leaving an estate to their kids or something, you know, um, which sure there is that or, or whether you, you know, go to Harvard or whatever. Right. <laughs> you know? um, but um, but I, but I think that I, I don't think that there is a human being on the planet who is not thinking about what they might leave to their children, um, what kind of security, mm. what kind of safety they might leave to their children. Um, in this case, because the land was so hard won, I'm just particularly talking about Bonaparte, land becomes really central. And it becomes, in fact, the only way that these people could have any degree of actual just bodily safety Mm. in the sort of terror years of the height of Jim Crow, right, in which their bodies were always going to be on the line. Um, And then, as it turns out, people's bodies are also on the line in the North, too, right? So land becomes incredibly important because people are looking for a place. Where do I go from which I can enact some sort of safety yeah. and I can leave safety to the people I love and my children, et cetera. But land is complicated in the United States, right? Because as Duchess says, that the land that is Bonaparte, the ancestors of the people who founded Bonaparte were brought there as enslaved people, right? And they settled there and they, you know, sort of begin the trajectory that becomes Bonaparte. 
but they are well aware that it's not their land. Yeah. It's complicated. And but Duchess talks about it. I don't have an answer to that. I don't know what to do with that. But she talks a lot about this is native land. We're here on it, and there's nowhere else for us to go. It was stolen and, in the first place, and ex- now we reoccupy exactly. it. Exactly. But, but what do we do with that, right? Because yeah. it's the only place where we can feel safe. It's the only place where we could feel free to the degree that we can. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a kind of... It's a kind of situation in which an original evil begets choices that are always compromised. Mm. You know, you're sort of forced into choices that are perhaps not the best choice, but but are maybe the only choice. Uh, I I am reluctant to say this, but it pops into my mind that it's something of the Black American experience. Uh, it's, it's, it's somewhat definitional right. <laughs> of forced into these imperfect choices. Right. Absolutely. Um, Quickly, do you have a relationship to land? <laughs> I, 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 as someone, you're from Philadelphia. I was also born and raised in the North. I, I never really had a direct relationship to land itself. Do you have a relationship to land? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I right. think about it a lot, I but I have no. I, I have no. You know, I grew up in apartment buildings that were rented. That's how I grew up. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. We need to take a break. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with Ayana Mathis about her second novel, which is out this week. It's called The Unsettled, and it's the story of one Black family's effort across three generations to figure out what it means to be free. And we're taking your calls. How do you define freedom and self-determination in your own life? More with Ayana Mathis and your calls coming up. Stay with us. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined by best-selling author Ayana Mathis. Her second novel, called The Unsettled, is out this week, and as the title suggests, it's a story about searching for home, for safety, and ultimately for freedom, this elusive thing. And listeners, you get to drive a lot of this next part of the conversation. You can, can you define what it means to be free today? Great, big, massive question. I get it. But... An important one, one that really governs all of our lives. So what to you does it mean to be free? Let's see what you can come up with. We can also take questions for Ayana Mathis about her work and about either of her two novels. And let's go right to Noble here in New York City. Noble, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Very well. I understand you've got a question for Ayana. Yeah, I was wondering why she um, chose the name um, Bonaparte Bonaparte for the... um, town, considering the most famous Bonaparte, Napoleon, was, uh, you know, really kind of hell on um, black people reinstituted, reinstituted the slave trade, there's the thing with Haiti, and um, all of that, although to mm-hmm. be um, 
to get the historical record fully accurate, he did not blow the nose off the Sphinx. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, right, no, well, let me know. let me get the answer. Thank you for that collection of the historical record. Um, though you. I actually I can't say whether Noble's right or not. I hope you are, Noble. All right, Ayana, why uh, why Bonaparte? Uh, well, because I wanted it to, I'm both concerned with your historical accuracy and not. So <laughs> a lot of that part of the United States was, in air quotes, settled by um, by the French. So, there, you know, there at, at a certain point before the United States or the United States, there's all these folks vying for land. So we've got, we've got among others, there's the English, the French, and the Spanish. Uh, and the French would have been fairly active around that part of Alabama. Not exactly, but close enough. Um, um, and so I wanted, in my mind, I wanted the sort of founding of the town originally to have been by white people who brought African mm. slaves with them. And in my mind, they would have been French or French-influenced, and thus the name of the town. And it stands because it is sort of ironic for all of the reasons that that Noble pointed out. Yeah. You are, I assume, quite a student of history. Is that the case? Um, both of these novels are really situated in these sweeps of history. Uh, is, have you always been a student of history? I think I have. I think, I think once I realized that, that history was actually just a collection of people doing a lot of things mm-hmm. I beca- and, and that it was stories, I think I became interested. I was not when I was younger when it was yeah. just a bunch of dates and battles and it was sort of disconnected from human activity or, or human beings' stories. But once I realized that it was sort of History was actually a thing that was happening inside of people's bodies. Then I then I became very interested in history. And a thing that's happening in everybody's bodies. I, I we we had a conversation on the show um, uh, with uh, this. Oh goodness, now I'm mid sentence. I'm going to forget the the scholar's name. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but she writes about people who lived. Otherwise, I thought of mm. I thought of that phrasing when you were describing who Ava was. People who lived otherwise mm. and the way they had been written out of history, mm-hmm. um, and the need to rewrite them into it. Uh, sometimes that takes the work of a novelist. <laughs> it, it, yeah. We did, we are both archivers and archivists and inventors, I suppose. Mm. Uh, let's go to Aubrey in Houston, Texas. Aubrey, welcome to the show. Hi. Good morning or good afternoon now. Do, do you have a definition of freedom for yourself, Aubrey? I do. I was going to say that um, freedom for myself means being able to live independently, both mentally and physically, period. I mean, that's been from the government, from other people. Um, you know, being able to choose your own way. Mm. And and how did you come to that? When did you come to that idea? Because it sounds, you say it with well, clarity. Uh, the reason... <laughs> The reason I really called is um, because when my husband and I were starting to, uh, we after college and everything, we started to put down roots. Um, it was really unsettling to kind of go back to our hometown and not be able to buy land, not mm. be able to buy a home. Kind of, uh, we had to search elsewhere for that, um, and that was that was kind of uh, not being able to support yourself and be free from you know, the, the constraints of society, which I feel like you have to do that, or you have to have land to do that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was really disheartening. And I feel like it's like that for a lot of young people right now. Yes, it is. Thank you for that, Aubrey. Well, uh, one person in in the unsettled who has a clear 
somewhat strident idea of what it means to be free that is connected to land and ownership uh, is Cass. Mm-hmm. So introduce us. You you sort of alluded to Cass earlier. Introduce us to Cass as we meet him in Philadelphia. He is um, he's an ex he's a he's a physician. He's a former Black Panther. Um, he is a guy who has some very specific ideas, as you said, about freedom, about what it ought to look like, about what community ought to look like. A lot of those ideas are influenced by his, um, by what he learned when he was a Panther, but he's become disillusioned with the Panthers. And he's kind of disillusioned, I think, with many of the Black freedom movements of the 60s and 70s in general. And that's an important part of this book setting in the 80s, because I think a lot, you're coming out of this period of extraordinary change and upheaval, Black liberation movements and a whole lot of other things, the anti-war movement, et cetera, et cetera. And you get to the 80s, it all changes, right? It's 1980, Reagan gets elected, everything is different. And so you have these folks that are in some ways still, uh, that become very disillusioned with what had come before and why Mm -hmm. it didn't work. And if there were some other way to do it and another possibility, and that's what and where Cass is. He's, uh, but he's, 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 he's tough. He's a right about a lot of things, as I said, about his ideas about freedom and autonomy. He's a physician, so he wants to start a medical cl- clinic that's free for everyone. But he's got some methods of going about things that are questionable at best, and I'm, I'm being generous. Yeah. I mean, anybody who is familiar with the histories of the Black Power movement and that moment We'll hear echoes of some of the men in that movement in mm-hmm. in Cass's character. Um, is that intentional? Um, where is I mean, are, are you thinking about that moment um, as well? Yeah, it was very intentional. I was very well aware of him as a as a as a panther, as a former panther, and I was very you know in Philadelphia there was an actual incident in which uh, when there was a kind of notorious police chief and mayor named Frank Rizzo, uh, who was the mayor of Philadelphia for quite a long time, and he he was notorious for many many reasons, um, among them in kind of extraordinary rates of police brutality against people in general um, and black people in particular, and there was an incident in which um, there was a raid on a on a black Panthers headquarters. And Rizzo, basically the police pulled all these guys out of the of the HQ in their underwear. And they lined them up against a brick wall and they photographed them in their underwear. Um, and I saw a picture of this some years ago. I didn't know what I would do with it or why it was, I mean, it's obvious why it would strike you, but I, I didn't know what it meant to like, my fiction writer mm-hmm. self. Um, I clipped it. I found an archive of it. I got it. I printed it out. And so that was always very much in my mind, um, this sort of, the, the, the kind of violation of people who were um, very much interested in trying to create and do something that was that was better, that was noble and that was good. And also at the same time, I'm aware of the sexism because that, that yeah. was there, you yeah. know, yeah. It, it, nothing's perfect, right? Yeah. Um, and I, and I, in the book, what I hope that I'm doing, you know, Cass is no longer a Black Panther. So it is not a representation of the Black Panthers. He's got his own kind of thing going on that he's right. kind of come up with. Um, but I did want to represent that sort of, that um, kind of tension between the things that he's right about and his very real concerns about black health, um, autonomy, all of these sorts of things, and the fact that he also has these sort of really authoritarian and also deeply sexist mm-hmm. other side of him um, 
that 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 really shows its hand very strongly. So mm-hmm. that 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 tension in him is is also there. Yeah. Uh, as an aside, uh, my producer points out that the uh, author I was trying to think of earlier, the historian, is Saidia Hartman, sure. um, who writes <laughs> of people living otherwise. Um, uh, and so now I'm compelled to say we will put a link to that episode in the show notes in our podcast for this episode, so you can check it out. Um. So. Uh, Cass has this idea of freedom. Um, it's um, becomes what what he calls the fellowship of the ark, um, mm-hmm. and it's a road towards freedom. Uh, it's troubled in all the ways that you've. He's troubled in all the ways that you've just described. How would you contrast these the ideas uh, of freedom presented in the fellowship of the ark um, with those at Bonaparte? Mm-hmm. Um, are they? You 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 present these two places as 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 sites of 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 a search for freedom. How would you contrast them? I I've always thought in many ways of of the Ark as a kind of dark mirror of Bonaparte. Both mm. both places are very much interested, as we've said, in freedom and autonomy. Um, both places attempt to do that economically as well. Um, I mean, one of the questions that I was thinking about in the book was, if you tried to make a community like that, what what challenges would come up? Aside from the, the isms that press and threaten, what does it look like economically? How do you feed yourself? What do you do about your kid's education? You know, all of these sorts of things. Um, and so I think in many ways that, that Cass's arc is a thing that comes out of a very good and real intention but that is muddied by something I think very particular. And the thing that muddies it, I think, and and this is going to risk sounding a little woo-woo, I think the thing that muddies it is that there isn't love. Mm. And I I don't mean love as like a feel-good sort of sappy emotion with puppies or something. I mean love as a force. Right, like the love that we sort of saw in the civil rights movement, you know, or the love that we saw in the black liberation movements, this real deep love of black people that moves you towards action. It's not soft, it's not simple, it's not. But I don't think, I think that what Cass has is anger, righteous anger, and they have it in Bonaparte too, but the love is missing. And because the love isn't there, his vision gets clouded, it gets muddied, his worst impulses and worst instincts begin to take charge because there's nothing to counteract them. This is such an important point. Um, you know, and it goes back to now I'm thinking maybe I have closer to an answer of what black freedom means to me because it, it must include love. It must. It must include love. Otherwise, you end up in acquisition, in capitalism, mm-hmm. in you end up in the spaces that you're trying to get out of. You're just recreating it. You just mm-hmm. you end up just recreating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's go to Natalie in Perlin, Texas. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you, and what a great show. Um, so yeah, I, I've been sitting here in my garage waiting to hop in, and, and I just wanted to say, what does freedom mean to me? It means having the freedom to. Um, exist in all the different spaces um, that your identity takes you. So in my case, as a woman who's over 55, who um, is who chose not to have children, who is single, like existing in those places and existing in a faith that is, is Jewish and Christian and, and all those different places, but existing in the creative spots and places, and yes, with love, but not having it projected onto me as what that has to look like, mm. whether it's from the dominant culture or even within the African-American culture, what it means to have made a choice not to have children. Mm. Um, so I think freedom 
means a lot of things, but I know I don't have a lot of time, but I definitely wanted to jump in. Well, you, you do have time. I, I want to ask you, Natalie, how did you come to that idea? Uh, living it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just, it, I, I'm, from, I'm from the north. I'm from Chicago. And moving down to the south has been a little different. And, and the way people respond was, well, you don't have children. No, I don't. And mm-hmm. it was a choice. And, you know, because, because not everybody wants to have children, and I love children, and they're wonderful, but not everybody wants to. And, and the things that people will project onto that, what it means to be a, a heterosexual uh, woman, what it means to be single, period. Mm-hmm. Half the population is single, and yet, um, you know, it's Sunday, and there are people who go to church, and yet most churches, you, you never talk about sex right and yeah. and how do you walk with your faith um as a sexual being because we're human and we're sexual beings so just really figuring it out like we all do in life is how <laughs> i came to it. what you does it mean it. to be free <laughs> you earned the definition uh, yeah and i have people yeah and have people project onto you you know yeah. whether it's someone who when you open your mouth they expect you to sound a certain way because you have brown skin right you're not supposed to string mm. the decent sentence or if it's in the black community and, and, you know, there's other expectations yeah. coming in you. So I think true freedom, I often think um, when um, I hear we shall overcome, we will overcome when we stop putting all those pressures on ourselves. I'm going to stop you there, Natalie, just for time, but thank you so much for your call. I hope you'll call us back. Uh, we're, 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 we're starting to wrap up here, but I want to ask you about a couple of moments in the book. Um, um, there, so there's one little moment, uh, uh, where it's near the end of the story and Duchess is kind of pontificating to herself, uh, about history and the state of the world. And she says, you know, white people were a terror, but black people were fools. She says, she says, quote, we have always been beautiful fools. Me too. Tell me about that line. That's just that's just straight up James Baldwin reverence. Um, <laughs> there's a, um, you know, um, there there there's a there's a, an essay in which James Baldwin um, he's talking about many of the things. I think it's in the fire next time. And at a certain point, he's in his in his soaring you know kind of preacher rhetoric James Baldwin ness. <laughs> he's talking about he's talking about the wine stained hallways where he grew up, you know, in his building in Harlem, and he's you know, and he's talking about all of these things about black people and describing the the life of black people where he grew up and when he grew up. And he gets through this. I mean, it's soaring, it's gorgeous, it's all these things. And he's also, of course, talking about white supremacy and and it's and the threat to black life that it poses. And after he gets to the end of this long description of this of the beauty of black life, he says. And I, I quote, he says, what will happen to all that beauty? If, if, if the forces that are not just, I should say, by the way, which Baldwin is well aware of, if the forces that have arrayed themselves around the dehumanization of black people win, which also dehumanizes them. I mean, we're all in this big boat of being dehumanized together, right? Um, if they win, what will happen to all that beauty? And so that's, uh, that line is really just sort of directly thinking about that. Yeah. What a wonderful place for us to start to wrap up. Well, your, the, your book launches this week. Yeah. Where are you? You're going to run around the country talking? Where, where, where are people going to hear you? I'm running all around. I'm starting here in New York City on September 26th. I will be at the Center for Fiction. Uh, I will be then in, I'm doing, going to Thank You Books in Birmingham, Alabama. I will be also in Atlanta. 
I am forgetting a lot of things. Philadelphia, obviously, my hometown. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I will also be in Seattle, Washington, in Portland, Oregon, and I think I've probably forgotten a couple of places. But um, all around, all around the nation. All around the nation. Well, if you heard your city name checked, look it up. Ayanna Mathis is the author of the new new novel, The Unsettled. It's her second novel, and it's officially published on September 26th. Thanks for this time, Ayanna. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everyone who called in. You can keep talking to us. Just go to notesfromamerica.org, look for the green record button, and leave us a voice note. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Theme music by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. Our team also includes Karen Froman, Florencia Gonzalez, Regina Dehir, Kusha Navadar, Rahima Nasa, David Norville, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Our executive producer is Andre Robert Lee. I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for hanging out. 